This is Guns and Butter. What I'm saying is everything indicates that this capture of a city of more than one million people was staged because it's impossible for a force of a thousand rebels to come in and take over a city of one million when it has a standing army of 30,000. Uh, the command structure was under Shiite control. It was not under Sunni control. You know, the commander general of, of those forces was a, was a very close associate of al-Maliki, and he left the city. So presumably he left the city because somebody told him to leave the city, or he was co-opted to doing that. Uh, it's, it's a very well-equipped army. It would have decimated those thousand rebels in, in no time with, uh, with U.S. advanced technologies, helicopters, and so on. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show, ISIS, an instrument of the Western Military Alliance. Michelle Chosodovsky is an economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism. His most recent article is The Engineered Destruction and Political Fragmentation of Iraq Towards the Creation of a U.S.-Sponsored Islamist Caliphate. Today we discuss ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, and its recent rampage through northern Iraq. Who comprises this rebel militia? Who is supporting it? The origins of the Sunni Caliphate? Long-standing U.S. agenda for the Middle East? the effect of Iraqi political fragmentation on Syria and Iran, and the breakup of nation-states within the larger global geopolitical framework. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome. Delighted to be on uh, Guns and Butter. All of a sudden, seemingly out of the blue, the media was filled with pictures and stories of a horde called ISIS, which came barreling across northern Iraq, seemingly unopposed, with cities falling like dominoes. The Iraqi army, it was reported, dropped their weapons and fled, some even removing their uniforms. I saw pictures on the Internet of guys riding on cream-colored trucks, the men all sporting matching black outfits and carrying black flags with white Arabic inscriptions on them. Iraq's second-largest city, Mosul, is now in their hands. What is ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, and did it spring from nowhere? Well, the Islamic State of Iraq and Al-Sham, sometimes called also the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, um, is really an offshoot of an al-Qaeda-based organization which emerged uh, pretty much even before the the U.S. invasion. It was associated with uh, with uh, Zakawi, uh, the mysterious uh, sort of mysterious uh, Al Qaeda leader. It was um, initially um, identified as the Islamic State of Iraq, 
until um, until about a year ago, and then it became the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, and uh, it was then integrated into the rebel forces which were fighting the government of Bashar al-Assad. Now, I should mention that ISIS is a U.S. um, intelligence asset. It is a creation of U.S. intelligence. It's funded by Qatar and Saudi Arabia on behalf of Washington. Uh, It is recruited as far as the Syrian insurgency is concerned, in, uh, in the Gulf states. It's composed of mercenaries. It is a U.S. instrument. And what we witnessed in the last week or so is the movement of rebel forces of ISIS from Syria into Iraq, and uh, the so-called takeover and occupation of the second largest city, uh, which is Mosul. Now, if we start to analyze this terrorist entity, we first must address the fact that there were approximately 1,000 rebels involved, as opposed to 30,000 regular forces of, um, of the Iraqi military, which were based in, uh, in Mosul. And something occurred uh, within the military command structures, which enabled the rebels to take control of the city. But before I get into that, I'd like to explain that within these rebel formations, and we know that from the war in in Syria, you have Western military advisors. Uh, Many of those, actually, of those Western military advisors and mercenaries were arrested by by the Syrian government forces. So we, we know that they have special forces within these brigades. Now, these special forces within these brigades are also in liaison with command structures of the Western Military Alliance, NATO and and the U.S. And they also may be in liaison with their counterparts, special forces, which are advising the Iraqi armed forces. Those Iraqi armed forces, although they're not under structure of joint command, like in some other countries, like Korea, South Korea. Nonetheless, the United States equips, oversees those Iraqi forces, and ultimately calls the shots. So what I'm saying is, first of all, you had communication between special forces within ISIS, uh, which were accompanying the terrorist uh, brigades, and their counterparts in the Iraqi um, in the Iraqi um, forces, I'm talking about Western military advisors, mercenaries, and we know that the, the Iraq is swarming with, with mercenaries, very large numbers, particularly since the withdrawal of, uh, of U.S. forces. And what I'm saying is everything indicates that this 
uh, capture of a city of more than one million people was staged because it's impossible for a force of a thousand rebels to come in and take over a city of one million when it has a standing army of 30,000. And the Western media has uh, pointed to defections within those armed forces uh, as the main cause. But defections do not explain, because when they are defections, the question is, what happens to the command structure? Uh, the command structure was under Shiite control. It was not under Sunni control. The main, you know, the commander general of, of those forces was a, was a very close associate of al-Maliki, and he left the city. So presumably he left the city because somebody told him to leave the city, or he was co-opted to doing that. And so that there was a collapse in the command structures of that uh, formidable force of 30,000 men, um, which can only be explained uh, when we, we look at the, you know, at the structure of those armed forces, the links to the U.S. military and so on and so forth. Uh, it's, it's a very well-equipped army. It would have decimated those thousand rebels in, in no time. With, uh, with U.S. advanced technologies, helicopters, and so on. And it's not a defections which would have prevented this, this military from, from operating. So what I'm suggesting is, A, there was communication between the rebels, which are essentially an intelligence asset of the Western Military Alliance, the foot soldiers of the Western Military Alliance in Syria, well-documented, and they are performing a, a specific role within, uh, within Iraq, which is essentially to, to uh, create divisions and eventually to create, to create or to trigger the, the destruction of Iraq as a, as a nation state and as a unified country. And the, the, the tendency now is towards the breakup of Iraq into three separate entities, one being the so-called caliphate, uh, the Sunni caliphate, which has been a long-standing objective of U.S. foreign policy. It's not an objective of the Iraqi people. The second is, is independent Kurdistan, which is almost de facto in northern, in northern Iraq. Uh, and I should mention that Kurdistan is also supported by Israel, and then uh, you would have some kind of Shia Arab Republic. Um, th that is the objective for both Iraq and Syria. And uh, it is something which has been very carefully engineered to the extent that not only is the United States supporting ISIS, but it is also, uh, it has also been able to, in a sense, dismantle the resistance movement against uh, aggression and occupation. The, the tribal organizations, as well as the former Ba'athists, which we might say constitute the secular resistance, they're not associated with an extremist, uh, fundamentalist, jihadist uh, movement. But these groups 
have now stated, uh, first of all, they've, they've acknowledged and said, no, ISIS did not liberate Mosul. They said, we liberated Mosul. Now, I, I think the first part of the statement is, is correct. ISIS didn't liberate. Uh, the insurgent forces came in, and in all likelihood, this was carefully planned, and it was carefully planned uh, by the United States and its allies. Um, if, if this is not the case, then the United States would have made sure that uh, Iraqi uh, military forces would have acted, acted on their behalf. But bear in mind, uh, in as much as ISIS is, is not an independent entity in its own right, it's an instrument of, of the United States and its allies, uh, this rebel force was sent in uh, with its Western military advisors. And uh, the objective was essentially to, to uh, destabilize the, the government in Baghdad and to create divisions within Iraqi society, which will lead towards a scenario of, of uh, civil war. Well, now, uh, you have said that uh, mercenaries, uh, that is, paid soldiers, are all over the nation of Iraq. Are the members of ISIS itself, are these mercenaries? Well, I would suspect that as far as ISIS is concerned, you have uh, Iraqis, which which are part of, of this organization. Historically, it was an Iraqi organization going back to 2003, but it was, it was supported covertly by, by the United States. And um, I should mention that uh, when John Negroponte was ambassador and um, Robert Stephen Ford was number two at the U.S. Embassy, they not only set up the, the Shia death squads, but they also ensured the formation of the so-called al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, which was under the auspices of this mysterious character, Musab al-Sakawi. Um, but in, in, in essence, we can say that a large number of the recruits are, are Iraqi. But then when it started up in Syria, and that was in April 2013, and it changed its name to ISIS, the, um, the, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, then what we got is a process more also of recruitment through um, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states. And uh, there I would suspect that they're foreign fighters, a large number of foreign fighters, Iraqis, and a scatter of special forces which are there. Some of them may be covert, some of them may be actually accompanying the, the groups, they will not know necessarily that these are uh, representatives of the Western Military Alliance, although the leaders might. And that is the basis of the liaison with, with their counterparts. So this, this is a, an intelligence op. It's, it's, a scenario, it's a scenario which is now occurring in the wake of the official withdrawal of U.S. troops, but it is also there to ensure, well, it, it's there essentially to break Iraq as a, as a nation state and to trigger fighting between the, the, various, the various factions. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, 
ISIS, an instrument of the Western Military Alliance. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, what role would you say that the Maliki government in Baghdad is playing? If this uh, so-called invasion by ISIS was staged, uh, do you think the Maliki government is cooperating, or do you think, uh, in a in a bizarre twist, the United States is portrayed in the media as coming to the rescue of the Iraq state? There's a big discussion about this in the media. Is this portrayal accurate? Um, according to the Fiscal Times, quote, the prospect of Iraq breaking apart would be a body blow to American foreign policy. Cultivated over the last decade and a half, Americans have invested more than a trillion dollars and thousands of American lives in a stable Iraq, unquote. Does the U.S. want a stable Iraq? No, the U.S. doesn't want a stable Iraq. What we, what we have is a situation whereby a so-called civil war has been triggered, and uh, what's happening is that the United States is supporting both sides. It's supporting uh, the Maliki government, which is a U.S. proxy government. We know that. It's, it's, it takes its orders from Washington. It is providing it with a, a lot of military hardware, including F-16s, uh, and, and uh, Iraq uh, ambassador of the United States just about a week ago was in, uh, in Texas to take delivery of, of F-16s. Now, you might ask yourself, what is the use of F-16s when you're fighting a, a rebel army? Well, the use is that it's a big contract for Lockheed Martin. And so there's billions and billions of dollars going to the, to the, to the U.S. defense contractors, so-called defense contractors. And, um, and at the same time, this government is firmly supported by, by the United States. So they're coming to the rescue of the Maliki government uh, against a, a terrorist entity which is controlled by Washington. Okay? So it, it's a very insidious uh, intelligence op. You support both sides. You support the Maliki government with, uh, with the sophisticated weapons and so on and so forth, military advisors, mercenaries, by the hundred, well, there are more than 100,000 mercenaries in Iraq, apparently, according to, to sources. And then on the other hand, you support these terrorists, and we know that, that ISIS is supported covertly by the United States because it, it's the pattern which was set in the in the Soviet Afghan war and in all subsequent wars whereby terrorist formations were were supported covertly by US intelligence so it it's it's a sinister process of supporting both sides arming both sides and eventually creating conditions for the collapse of the institutions of a nation state its economy its uh, its education, its health, all that, of course, has already been destroyed. But this notion that the United States wants a stable Iraq is, is, is nonsensical. What they want is a territory that, that is open to, to Western investors with little in terms of regulation and, and negotiation with officials. Uh, it's a very diabolical process of, of reconquest, and it is also a process of 
redrawing the borders of the Middle East in the same way as, as the Federation of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was divided into seven countries. Can you imagine? Seven small countries in the Balkans. Now, what is contemplated with regard to Iraq is the creation of three, three countries, and they may overlap with, uh, with uh, Syria as well as with Iran. Now, the other element which is emerging now is that Iran is being sucked into this conflict, and the, the discussions which took place between the United States and Iran in Vienna uh, just a couple of days back point uh, to the fact that um, the United States is willing to collaborate with Iran in the campaign against the ISIS terrorists. Now, the, the irony is that Iran is supporting the Maliki government, and uh, at the same time, uh, Iran, and Iran also has uh, special forces inside Iraq on, on behalf of the Maliki government, and at the same time, it is uh, involved in the counter-terrorism operation against ISIS. Everybody knows that this is fake because, and they say, the Western media is saying the U.S. and Iran have a mutual interest in stemming the advance of terrorism, blah, blah, blah. It's an absurd proposition knowing that ISIS is a creature of U.S. intelligence, financed by the Western military alliance, trained with Western forces in its ranks, and Tehran knows that. Okay? They, they have their own intelligence services, but they're using the IS, IS pretext as an opportunity to intervene in Iran so that this could potentially lead into a regional conflict, particularly if Iran gets overtly involved in Iraq and it would be some kind of repeat of the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, I think it's worth noting that from a military standpoint, the U.S. is not really doing anything. They said they're sending in something like 300 troops, essentially to protect their assets, but they're not doing anything, at least for the moment. Um, but we're at a very dangerous crossroads, because on the one hand, we have a terrorist organization controlled by the United States, which is entering Iraqi cities, but also we have a resistance movement. Let's say it's a secular resistance movement. It's made up of, of the, tribal, the tribal organizations, uh, including the, the Tribal Revolutionary Council, as well as sections of the former Ba'athist movement, including the military, but these forces, although they're dead against uh, the, the ISIS, they said, no, we, we can't collaborate with ISIS, the very dangerous terrorist organization. But they are now saying that they may have to collaborate with ISIS because ISIS is involved in a process uh, which serves their interests. In other words, we have a mutual interest in liberating cities, and they are liberating the cities alongside the resistance movement. But the irony is that they don't understand the resistance movement, the broader Iraqi resistance movement, don't 
understand or don't want to understand that ISIS is an instrument of the United States. And they are also in the process of shifting their emphasis away from the fact that Iraq was uh, invaded and occupied by the United States to uh, the role of Iran, the interference of Iran in affairs of, of a sovereign country. Uh, I think quite rightly so, but at the same time, the role of the aggressor nation you know, has, been, has been removed to the extent that some leaders of the tribal movement are actually saying uh, we need Western help. And if we don't get Western help, uh, and I quote, and this is a statement by, by a leader of the political wing of the Tribal Revolutionary Council based in Amman, and what he says is the following, that without Western help, the tribes and ISIS may be forced to combine efforts targeting their shared enemy, the Shia-dominated Iraqi government. So that essentially what we, we are seeing now, first of all, is that the resistance movement is, is becoming sectarian. It's a, the Sunni resistance movement. Um, there's no such thing as a national resistance movement which regroups all the different, you know, the, the Shia and the Sunni and, and the Christians and, and, and so on. That era has gone. And at the same time, it, it seems like the resistance movement is not the resistance movement against the aggressor nation, which still controls the government of Iraq. It is the resistance movement against the Shia government. So it becomes sectarian. And then the shift of emphasis is Iran instead of the United States, although now they're, they're accusing Iran of collaborating with the United States. Well, yes, with regard to Iran, I hear talk now in the media about Iran and the United States getting together to fight the Sunni menace. Are the U.S. and Iran really having a possible rapprochement, as the media claims? They say uh, it's the, quote, silver lining of the crisis. Or will we more likely see a reenactment of the Iran-Iraq war? I... uh of course, I think it's an absurd proposition to say that the U.S. and Iran have a mutual interest. And certainly they, they don't have a mutual interest in stemming the advance of, uh, of ISIS, which is a U.S. intelligence asset. Okay? The, the United States has an interest in making sure that ISIS continues to create uh, violence and, and uh, atrocities, as we have seen in the last two days, the killing of people, uh, the mass killings and beheadings and so on. And those atrocities, incidentally, are very similar to those which occurred in Syria. And they're, they're, they're being implemented under the same, uh, you know, under the same kind of uh, fundamentalist uh, framework, because all these people are very carefully trained. So the United States' interest is to ensure that ISIS continues. It's certainly not going to start bombing ISIS, okay? They need ISIS. And to say that they're going to collaborate with Iran, I think what, I think the U.S. policy objective is uh, one of very careful deceit and staged, uh, you know, a staged type of process whereby 
Iran would be sucked into the Iraqi civil war, which would then lead possibly to uh, a regional conflict. And it could be a regional conflict on sectarian lines. I should mention there's another dimension to that, is of course that, that Iran also have a, has a significant Kurdish community. And uh, the United States has even been contemplating for years now that the formation of a so-called free Kurdistan, which would be made up of portions of Syria, Iraq, and Iran, you know, that is the proposal. It's to create a, a Kurdistan which would ultimately uh, create conditions possibly of civil war within Iran as well, okay? And so that you're, you're, you're in a situation where um, the borders of that entire region are being redefined, not only in Iraq. I think the ultimate objective of the United States is also to, to um, redraw the, the borders of, of Syria and, and Iran. Now, as to whether they'll be able to achieve that, but at the moment, what, what seems to be the unfolding scenario is a territorial division of Iran, uh, where Sunni caliphate is in the process of formation. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, ISIS, an instrument of the Western military alliance. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, how are these military developments in Iraq going to affect Syria? Hasn't the Syrian government been prevailing over the rebels or mercenaries? Of course, at great cost, uh, because uh, Syria has been torn apart. So how is this going to affect Syria? And also, what do you think about the timing of this invasion by these ISIS forces? Why now? First of all, I think that in the wake of the Syrian elections, um, the possibilities of the insurrection within Syria are limited because essentially that insurgency has been in large part defeated uh, by Syrian government forces. And uh, a large part of the national territory is under government control. I suspect that what the United States will be contemplating, uh, it will continue with, with its efforts to destabilize Syria, to create a humanitarian crisis. Uh, it will be involved in ad hoc uh, terrorist undertakings. Uh, it will also be involved in economic warfare. And um, all those things are there to destabilize Syria as a nation-state. And it will now integrate the process of destabilization between the two countries, because now it has an insurgency in Iraq, uh, which is the same group as, as in Syria. And that integration of the insurgency corresponds to geopolitical objectives. It was formulated with a view, essentially, to, uh, to facilitate a transition in, uh, in Iraq, but also it also has implications for, uh, for Syria. 
And I think what they want to do now is to garnish and uh, encourage the broader support of ISIS by the Sunni population in Iraq. That won't happen in Syria, okay? Certainly not now. Uh, there's no support among the Sunni community for the terrorist organizations. But in Iraq, ISIS is seen as fighting the Shia government, and uh, it is also uh, entering into some form of de facto alliance with the secular resistance, the Ba'athist movement, as well as the tribal movement. And so it's going to get more support. And once it has more support, it will also be able to perform a broader role at the regional level. And, and it could, in fact, even go back to, to Syria with, a reinforced, uh, with reinforced brigades and so on and so forth. But um, one element which struck me and which is very important, a few days before the, the elections in, um, in Syria on, on June 3rd, um, Turkey started cutting uh, water supplies down the Euphrates. And there, there was also a terrorist uh, attack on on uh, on water facilities, dam facilities. And there was very little reporting on this, but essentially those um, events are uh, cutting water off to Syria, but cutting water also off to Iraq, because the Euphrates comes from Turkey and goes into Syria and Iraq, and so that control over those waterways is a, is a means... Uh, it, it's environmental warfare. It's there to destroy people's livelihoods, destroy agriculture, their access to drinking water, and so on and so forth. And, uh, I mean, ironically, the reports that came out in the Western media regarding the, the water wars, which I think is the correct designation, was to say that there was a that there was a secondary market, a black market for water in northern Syria. But they didn't say why. They didn't say why. They didn't say that, that there, there was a decision by Turkey to cut the water off to Syria, which is a, it's a criminal uh, undertaking to do that. And so what, what I'm suggesting is that to destroy a nation state, you destroy its economy, you destroy its environment, its agriculture, and all avenues, as Hillary Clinton will say, all options on the table from that point of view. It's uh, economic sanctions, it's environmental warfare, uh, it's uh, the use of terrorist organizations, it's, uh, it's the triggering of civil wars, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I think that the avenue which the uh, the United States has chosen now, with regard to Iran, is that it's easier to suck them into a, into a, a new Iraq-Iran conflict, which inevitably would be of a sectarian nature, with Iran supporting the Maliki government on the one hand against the Sunnis. But that avenue is far more straightforward than envisaging a preemptive nuclear attack against Iran. Okay, which has been on the it's been on the drawing board for the last ten years, but it just so happens that Iran has 
has a very advanced uh, anti-missile system and so on and so forth. But now what is being contemplated is the extension of this, uh, of this non-conventional warfare where you implement conflict within a country that you want to ultimately control. And you don't necessarily want this country to remain as a country. That is, I think, the conclusion I'm, I'm reaching, is that the U.S. option today, not only in Iraq, but you can look at Nigeria and Mali, Central African Republic, it's not to colonize with some kind of institutional framework and administrative structure and, and, and counterparts and elites. What you want is simply to wipe out uh, the nation-state altogether. Uh, you're, you're not even going to have regime change anymore. Okay? We're not dealing with regime change. There's a regime there, and the United States now wants to get rid of this regime and replace it by three territories. And uh, so it, it's not regime change, it's not regime rotation, it's, it's the transformation of countries into territories. And it is, it is implemented by, by supporting jihadist terrorist organizations, sending them in in, a, in an environment where they can ultimately destabilize the prevailing government, and then eventually then the foreign investors will come in and pick up the pieces. And I should mention, that is the scenario in Nigeria, where you have, uh, you have a country which, which also has uh, sectarian divisions between Christians and Muslims, and where there's oil, you know, it's still, still the largest oil produced in, in Africa, uh, a large population. Uh, what you do is that you, you have your intelligence apparatus which which supports Boko Haram, uh, which is an insurgency, a fundamentalist insurgency, kidnapping young girls, and you also support the government of that country, and then you intervene because you have to come in and intervene because the terrorists are there, and you have to deal with the terrorists, but the terrorists wouldn't be there if you hadn't financed them and supported them in the first place, okay? So there wouldn't be any Boko Haram in, in Nigeria uh, if the CIA had not supported the formation of Boko Haram. That is the process in quite a number of countries. Uh, uh, it's the case in Nigeria. It's the case in Somalia, in Yemen. It, it was certainly the case in Libya, uh, where terrorist organizations are used as a mechanism of destabilization, but they're also used as as a mechanism for intervention on a humanitarian, with a humanitarian mandate. In other words, coming in under counter-terrorism, okay? And, and the irony is that these terrorist organizations are all created by U.S. intelligence, and then the United States comes in under the so-called war on terrorism with its counter-terrorist mandate uh, to the rescue of, of the civilian population. What I'm saying is perhaps very, you know, schematic, but I can say that after more than 10 years of research, that is the conclusion to which I arrive, and, and it is so well documented that these terror organizations are instruments of U.S. intelligence uh, that we have to ultimately acknowledge that. 
Now, the interesting thing is that the Western media, in their coverage of Iraq, they stayed very explicitly, and I quote, according to the Daily Express, British News, Daily News, quote, and they're talking about ISIS. They had money and arms supplied by Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And then the Daily Telegraph says, it's a little bit more explicit. They said, through their allies, such as Saudi Arabia and Qatar, the West has supported militant rebel groups, which has since mutated into ISIS and other Al-Qaeda-connected militia. It's always a little bit convoluted, but at least they acknowledge the fact that these terrorist organizations are supported by Qatar and Saudi Arabia. But nobody seems to be bothered by that assertion, and nobody is, is actually investigating something which is well known, is that Qatar and Saudi Arabia, their respective intelligence agencies, work hand-in-glove with the CIA. We've known that. Now, if, if Qatar and Saudi Arabia were the, were the sponsors of terrorism, and you were to apply U.S. foreign policy logic, what you should be doing is to invade Saudi Arabia and Qatar. That would be the way of resolving it, because all, all these organizations are funded by allies of the United States, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan's ISI, Inter-Services Intelligence. All of uh, the United States' main allies are behind these terrorist organizations on behalf of Washington, but then that provides the opportunity to the United States to say, we are implementing a war on terrorism, and these organizations are independent of us. They may even acknowledge the fact that Saudi Arabia gives them support, but under no circumstances are they going to go and bomb Saudi Arabia for having created Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is a creature of U.S. intelligence, and it allows precisely the U.S. media to spin lies and lies and lies because they say, well, no, the U.S. has nothing to do with these terrorist organizations. It's Saudi Arabia and Qatar who are supporting ISIS, but it, it fails to mention that both Doha and Riyadh are always acting on behalf and in close liaison with Washington. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, ISIS, an instrument of the Western Military Alliance. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, a few minutes ago, you brought up the water crisis and the fact that Turkey was shutting off the water of the Euphrates uh, into Syria and then, of course, uh, into Iraq. I had read about that, and I'm glad you brought that up because I'd forgotten about that. Now, you're talking about uh, Qatar and Saudi Arabia being allies of the U.S., uh, Turkey also is an ally of the U.S., uh, correct? And also Turkey... Uh, absolutely, and, and absolutely. Tur- and Turkey has been involved all along in the upheaval in Syria, right? Uh, Turkey has been providing a safe haven to the, to the Al-Qaeda rebels uh, in, uh, in Turkey. They've also been involved in the training. They, they have a very close relationship with Israel. It's a military cooperation agreement. And so that 
if we're looking at the front runners of the, let's say, the war on Syria, who is behind it, it's certainly Saudi Arabia, Qatar, which are involved in training and recruiting the rebels. Turkey, definitely, uh, as well. Uh, Jordan, to a lesser extent. Israel, out of the Golan Heights, is supporting uh, rebel formations, including al-Nusra. This is well known. So that uh, now, if we, we look at the issue of, of water, this is, a, in a sense, it's an absolutely devastating scenario because the Turkish government cut off the flow to the Euphrates River, largely threatening Syria, but also Iraq with a, with a major water crisis. And this potentially affects, within Syria, uh, several million people. Uh, uh, and now, bear in mind, is that the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria apparently were involved in blowing up uh, one of the dams on, on the Euphrates. And this happened, it happened, I think, in late May. It was on the 30th of May, if I recall correctly. And so... Uh, there we have a situation where the Al-Qaeda-linked ISIS, supported by the, the USA, uh, is involved in acts of sabotage directed against the water supplies which are going towards, towards Syria, so that we, we can see who is actually calling the shots in this regard. And finally, on a global scale, we see Russia and China making long-term deals. We see the rise of the BRICS countries, all of these major actors uh, on the global scene, of course, are now challenging U.S. hegemony. And there, of course, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the, the fall of the West. How do you think this messing around by the United States continually in the Middle East is going to play out against larger events? Well, I, I mean... This certainly when when an era uh, of confrontation between between Russia and China on the one hand and the Western military alliance on the other on the one hand the situation which is unfolding in in Ukraine uh, the militarization of the the whole of Eastern Europe and the Russian border and then if we we look at the at the Far East uh, Obama's pivot to Asia and the threats directed against China's sovereignty, with, which, uh, which, which includes not only NATO, it includes countries like Australia, South Korea, um, and the Philippines, which are now uh, partners in, in this endeavor. So that we're at a very, very dangerous crossroads. Um, we are dealing also with the potential dangers of nuclear war. And I should mention, and it's very important, we are not, this is not a new Cold War. If it were a new, a new Cold War, we would have the safeguards of the Cold War era. We don't have those anymore. The, the Cold War era was, was an era of relative stability. Why? Because the competing superpowers understood that any kind of unilateral action on their part would lead to global destruction because of the, well, the fact that, that you could not you, you cannot have a first strike. You did not envisage a first strike nuclear attack in the days of the Cold War. It was something which had been ruled out. It was called mutually assured destruction. But that, that doctrine, which 
ultimately is still relevant, has been scrapped. And it has been scrapped to the extent that nuclear weapons have been recategorized as safe for use in the conventional war theater, and they don't require presidential approval. They can be used by, a, by U.S. Central Command, uh, and they have the so-called uh, tactical nuclear weapons, so that nuclear war is certainly not something which can be ruled out. Uh, but, I mean, once a war starts, it escalates. And uh, the situation in Ukraine is extremely dangerous because uh, it, um, it's right at the Russian border and it is supporting a government which is, for all sakes and purposes, is a neo-Nazi government. Uh, so that that's another dimension, it's another historical dimension. And with regard to BRICS, I'm somewhat skeptical because, first of all, uh, many of these countries are very much dependent on the United States, uh, both uh, for, for various reasons, but, but mainly in the, in the spheres of economics. Uh, if you look at, if you look at um, uh, Brazil, now, Brazil is an ally of the United States from a military standpoint. It's a dollarized economy. It, it is under IMF World Bank auspices. Uh, look at India. For well, The outgoing Prime Minister of India, Manmohan Singh, was a former World Bank official. Uh, they implemented neoliberal policies in, starting in the early 90s. Uh, look at China. Uh, China has applied the most vicious capitalist... Uh, um, <laughs> has the most vicious capitalist economy you can possibly imagine with, with, a, with very, very low wages, with a migrant workforce of 250 million people, according to official figures. Okay? And uh, th these migrant workers are, are hired by factories, building sites, etc. It is not uh, an alternative society as far as, uh, you know, as far as, um, humanity is concerned. What we have is, is an opposition between, potentially between opposing blocs. But bear in mind that in many regards, China is the industrial colony of the United States, made in China. Uh, and they, they, have, uh, they have trading relations, they have, they have scientific relations, etc., etc., etc. And it is not China or even Russia which will uh, uphold a progressive perspective on how you fight U.S. imperialism. And that's not what they're involved in. What they are, what they are concerned with is that they want to retain a certain element of sovereignty. And I say that we probably support that. Okay? We support China and Russia um, in, in their foreign policy because we think that there's, there's a certain element of balance in their positions. But we don't necessarily uh, endorse uh, the Chinese social structure, which is the most unjust social structure on planet Earth, with a, a, a small elite of, of extremely wealthy people and a, and a process of impoverishment uh, down to the factory and farm levels. Um, so I'm not particularly... From that standpoint, I'm not particularly optimistic, and I don't think 
that the BRICS ultimately constitutes itself a countervailing force. It's a, it's a, it's a reunion of, of a number of countries, all of which have, have bilateral relations with the United States and the European Union, okay? And, and to say that this is the countervailing bloc, uh, China and Russia as countries do constitute a countervailing bloc. And they also constitute a very large area extending, you know, extending it's the Eurasia corridor. Um, but at the same time, um, you go to China and you realize that, that the Chinese banking system is integrated by, you know, by uh, Goldman Sachs and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, etc. They've opened up their banking system to, to, uh, to Western uh, financial interests. Uh, then you go to the factories, and then you realize that the factories are all producing made in China for the U.S. market at, at uh, two, three, uh, you know, three dollars a day with very, very low wages. So uh, the the situation; these societies are tremendously divided. Uh, you may have uh, an awareness uh, uh, in. Uh, in um, maybe an awareness in, in China that the country is being surrounded by U.S. military facilities. But if you raise this uh, with, uh, you know, with the business community, they say, no, we, we're trading with them. If you, if you go to the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, well, uh, they have links with, uh, with uh, U.S. think tanks. If you go to the university, then you realize the School of Journalism at Tsinghua University uh, has a, is in partnership with Bloomberg, which is funding a, a graduate program there. And so that these countries are not necessarily sovereign in, 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 in terms of, of a, well, they, they may be sovereign in some regards, and they certainly do not constitute an alternative to global capitalism. And I think that's very important. The alternative to global capitalism has to come from the masses of people, both in, in you know in, in different countries around the world. It's it's not Russia or China that's going to provide us with an alternative, but at the moment, I think it's very important to to um, uh, support um, some sanity in diplomacy and international relations. And we, I think, it's it's fair to say that. China and Russia foreign policy uh, is, uh, is somewhat of a different nature to that of the, of the United States and its allies. Uh, neither country has any hegemonic objective, uh, at least in present history, and uh, they don't constitute a threat to other countries. And, um, but at the same time, they are very fragile because uh, a good part of their economy is also dependent on the Western financial establishment, the hegemony of the dollar, and so on. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Delighted to be on the program. I've been speaking with Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show has been ISIS, an instrument of the Western Military Alliance. 
Michel Chosarovsky is director of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The Global Research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis. Michel Chosarovsky is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as co-editor of the anthology, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. All books are available at globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. It's the Secret Space Program and Breakaway Civilization 2014 Conference, Saturday and Sunday, June 28th and 29th, at the San Mateo Event Center, featuring speakers Joseph Farrell, Catherine Austin Fitz, Michael Schratt, Robert Morningstar, Richard Dolan, Carol Rosen, Mark McCandish, and John Rappaport. Is there a shadow in Top Secret Space Program? Visit the Secret Space Program and Breakaway Civilization 2014 conference website at www.secretspaceprogram.org for more information, ticket and web stream sales. That's secretspaceprogram.org. Peace, give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?